0: Hello there, another week, another recap. You know the drill by now. We set aside about 10 minutes of our time to go over what happened in our assigned Bible reading for the week. We test our memories, we get caught up, we're doing the work. We're making it through the Bible again this year. So 2 Samuel 8 to 1 Kings 7 was our reading for this week. In 2 Samuel 8, we get a record of David's military accomplishments, and we learn that the Bible is not joking when God called David a man of war. David defeated the Philistines. He defeated and subjected the Moabites, meaning they became a vassal kingdom of Israel, paying Israel tribute each year. Uh, He did the same thing to the Arameans and the Edomites, and David also made a peace treaty with the kingdom of Hamath. Now, this warfare meant money in the form of yearly tribute for Israel, but also it meant money in the spoils of war. David accumulated gold, silver, and bronze that his son Solomon would use to build the temple. In 2 Samuel 9, David honors the only remaining son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. So Jonathan's son is Mephibosheth. David calls him to Jerusalem and gives him all of Saul's old land. Now, Mephibosheth must be properly terrified at this point. Was David testing him? After all, technically, Mephibosheth had a claim to Saul's throne, and now David was giving him all of Saul's land, so his wealth and authority. It probably seemed fishy, but David assured Mephibosheth that because of his friendship and covenant with Jonathan, uh, it was going to be okay. Uh, And we learned that Mephibosheth and his son Micah would be treated well by David and would have a place at David's table always. In 2 Samuel 10, we get the record of David defeating the Ammonites after a new Ammonite king comes to power who breaks the peace treaty that once existed between Israel and Ammon. Now he does this by embarrassing the ambassadors that David sent to him. The uh, event of shaving and stripping the ambassadors, it sparks war and we get to see Joab's military prowess. Joab was the nephew of David and the commander of Israel's army. In 2 Samuel 11, we get the record of David's huge sin. He's sitting at home while his military fights his battles and David ends up abusing his power to have an affair with the wife of his warrior Uriah. David tries to cover up the wife's subsequent pregnancy, but when that doesn't work, he has Uriah killed in battle and then David marries Bathsheba. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan rebukes David for these horrendous sins and David does repent. David and Bathsheba's son is born, but dies shortly afterward. Joab then calls to David, calls to David from the battlefront because the battle is the war, really, is basically one. And Joab wants David to come and claim the final victory so that the honor would go to David and not to Joab. In 2 Samuel 13, we're told the horrific sin of David's son, Amnon, who sets up this whole scenario so that he can rape his half-sister, David's daughter, Tamar. We're told that David was furious, but not that he did anything to correct Amnon or help Tamar. So Tamar's full brother, David's son Absalom, kills Amnon for the crime and Absalom is banished. He goes to stay with his maternal grandfather, the king of Gesher. In 2 Samuel 14, Joab, through a series of events, arranges for David to invite Absalom back to Jerusalem to reconcile with him. Now it takes a few years, but it does happen. But then in 2 Samuel 15, we learn that Absalom is not interested in David being king of Israel. He must have lost total respect for his father. Absalom launches a conspiracy to take the throne of Israel and it works. He gets a tremendous amount of support in Israel and David has to flee the country. In 2 Samuel 16, we read about the people who either cursed David as he was on his walk of shame out of Jerusalem or people who tried to monopolize on the situation, like Mephibosheth's servant, who claimed, seemingly falsely, that Mephibosheth was backing Absalom. David still had a loyal following, however. His advisor, Hushai, became a double agent for him, pretending to be loyal to Absalom in order to send intel to David. In chapter 17, Hushai gives Absalom bad advice in order to sabotage him, and we learn of a loyal network across Israel that was getting David messages. 2 Samuel 18 records the military standoff between Absalom's force and David's force. Absalom is killed in battle by Joab against David's orders, and it ends the war, but David's devastated. In chapter 19, Joab convinces David to stop mourning for Absalom in order to rally the country back into following him. It works, but David never forgives Joab. In chapter 20, the civil unrest is not completely settled because there's another coup attempt against David, this time led by a man named Sheba, who gets all of the tribes of Israel except Judah, David's tribe, to back him as king of Israel. However, a wise woman and Joab worked together to execute Sheba and they settled the civil war. In 2 Samuel 21, David has to deal with an unsettled legal issue that is causing a famine in the land. There's an undealt with sin. King Saul, whom David took over from, of course, had tried to exterminate the Gibeonites, the people that Israel had made a covenant of peace with. The Gibeonites wanted the matter settled with capital punishment. Seven descendants of Saul pay the ultimate price but David is moved by the love of one of their mothers and he gives the men a proper burial. Second Samuel 22 contains a song of David that's almost exactly the same as Psalm 18. The theory is that Psalm 18 was probably a version of this song modified for use in the temple. 2 Samuel 23 records David's last words in a composed poem, and the chapter gives some of the exploits of David's special military unit, referred to as his mighty warriors or mighty men. 2 Samuel 24 closes out the book with a judgment on David for taking an unlawful census of the fighting men. Now God gives David options for punishment and David asks God to decide between famine or plague. The end result is that a plague strikes and God directs David to build an altar and sacrifice burnt offerings on it so that he can stop the plague. Now that brings us to 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 1, we see David's failing health as he ages, and his son Adonijah takes advantage of this to declare himself king. And David did nothing to resist Adonijah until the prophet Nathan and Bathsheba confront David because he had promised to make Solomon king. David then orders Solomon to be anointed and Adonijah is rightly terrified. He doesn't want to be executed, so he runs to the altar of God, which was a place of refuge. In 1 Kings 2, David charges Solomon to follow God and he gives him some pretty grisly tasks of who to execute when he becomes king. Now Solomon becomes king and he executes his brother, Adonijah, the commander of the army, Joab, and Solomon banishes the priest, Abiathar. In 1 Kings 3, King Solomon makes a marriage alliance with Egypt. He then sacrifices to God at Gibeon, where the tent tabernacle was set up, and God appeared to Solomon in a dream. Solomon asks for wisdom to lead Israel, and God blesses him. In 1 Kings 4, we get a description of Solomon's great wealth and examples of his God-given wisdom. We're told he wrote proverbs, psalms, and studied and taught about plant life and animals, among other things. We're also given a list of his chief officials. In 1 Kings 5, Solomon prepares to build the temple of God in Jerusalem. He utilizes David's ally Hiram, king of Tyre, to secure high quality wood needed to build the temple. And we're told how Solomon utilized taxed labor to secure materials from Lebanon and to quarry stone for his building projects. Now this taxed labor will become a major point of contention for Solomon's successor, his son Rehoboam. In 1 Kings 6, Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem and we're told it took him seven years to complete and that construction began in the 480th year after the Exodus. And finally for today, 1 Kings 7 records the building of Solomon's Jerusalem palace that took him 13 years to complete, and we're also told that he built another palace for his wife, Pharaoh's daughter. To finish the chapter, we're given a list of all of the furnishings that were made for the temple, like the two bronze pillars, the cast sea, and much, much more. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, pop them down below, and happy reading.